Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi there, and welcome once again to the Explaining History podcast. And in this episode, I want to talk about the reasoning, uh, particularly in the United States of America during the First World War, about what to do uh, regarding the colonies, uh, soon to become former colonies, of the central powers, particularly Germany and the Ottoman Empire. The discussions that are had and the uh, events that occur during the war, particularly as the war is fought in Africa and the Middle East, shape the development of mandates, which would be the new form of kind of neo-colonialism that would emerge at the end of the First World War. I've recently been reading The Guardians by Susan Pedersen. Um, it's a history of the mandate system and the League of Nations, and really the decline of 19th century empire as a new world where American power and the development of the League of Nations uh, creates all sorts of tensions which couldn't be reconciled in the way in which they had been in the 19th century through uh, various congresses and conferences between European powers. When Woodrow Wilson had made his 14 points, they didn't really pertain very closely to the world as it actually existed. Some of them were very grandiose ambitions, which were very difficult to reconcile with reality. Woodrow Wilson, on the journey from uh, America to Europe to attend the Paris Peace Conference, is an extremely remote figure um, spending a lot of time in his stateroom, not socialising or interacting very much with the rest of his delegation, a, a hundred-strong uh, group. And it was on this journey that a lot of policy was formulated, and many of the uh, delegation were desperate for Wilson to come out and clarify specifically what he meant. For example, the fifth point was that um, the League of Nations uh, hopefully settle uh, free, open-minded and absolutely impartial adjustment of all colonial claims. That, in its wording, can mean all sorts of things. But implicit was the fact that annexation, 
simply um, giving colonies now and territories to the victorious powers uh, as rewards for their fighting. The spoils of war, which had really been uh, a practice uh, from time immemorial, this had been ruled out. Um, and instead, some of the uh, peoples who had been colonised by Germany, by the Ottoman Empire, would now go into some kind of stewardship. Uh, there would be, particularly in Africa and the Pacific, the prevailing racist views of Africans at that time is that it was impossible they would be able to manage their own affairs. This, uh, to us, in, to our 20th century uh, liberal ears, is a deeply offensive concept, but we have to remember that we're not talking about the perspectives that we have. We're looking at the perspectives that highly educated and seemingly progressive individuals uh, people who, for example, were part of Wilson's delegation, hardly the most reactionary leader at the Paris Peace Conference, but still imbued in a uh, a white colonial Western paternalist uh, perspective, which uh, to which uh, the idea that Africans were incapable of running things themselves was a seeming common sense. Wilson said that the colonies would be, it's, he put it, common property of the League of Nations, that the League of Nations would be the proprietor and that the administration would go down, hopefully, to a non-imperial state. Wilson thought that perhaps Swedes and Norwegians and Danes might be uh, the uh, appropriate people to, uh, as kind of honest, impartial brokers to manage countries um, that had been, such as the German South West African colony. Returning colonies to their colonial masters was uh, an absolute red line for Wilson, who said, Nothing could more be more ignoble than to turn over millions of helpless natives to the tender mercies of Germany. It's doubtful that Wilson here was referring to Germany's own particular colonial track record, such as the genocide of the Nama and the Herero people in German Southwest Africa in the late 1880s. Uh, instead, he was probably uh, discussing uh, Germany's uh, supposed track record of brutality in its occupation of Belgium and France. Uh, the, much of this uh, is the stuff of wild exaggeration by Allied propagandists. And I think I did a podcast on this very topic uh, about three or four weeks ago uh, about British propaganda and the First World War. Not to say that Germany was innocent in the uh, occupation of Belgium, and certainly uh, civilians were killed, uh, but nothing on the scale of what was actually uh, actually alleged. So if the colonies weren't to be recolonised, and they weren't to manage themselves, uh, then the uh, steering body um, in America who had looked into all this which was referred to as the Inquiry, concluded that the Negro race has hitherto shown no capacity for progressive development except under the tutelage of other peoples. Well, a country divided by race uh, with a history of slavery and the enslavement of um, African uh, people would you know, doubtless have come to uh, this conclusion based on its, its its recent past. The uh, the views of the inquiry were 
undoubtedly shaped by uh, America's own experience of the enslavement of African people. One of the American delegation, George Lewis Beer, questioned whether the smaller nations of Europe, uh, the Norwegians for example, were really uh, equipped to manage an entire African colony. After all, what experience did they have? And for Beer, there was only one model that was in any way adequate. This was perhaps the least worst option, and that was the, the British. Uh, Beer argued that native rights were most carefully and effectively protected by uh, the, the British and the British colonies, and um, that Britain was most aligned in its thinking with uh, America. The real goal of America at the Paris Peace Conference, as I've discussed many times in the podcast, was to establish free trade and free trading policies that would allow the United States to penetrate Africa and Asia. And this would be the, the kind of the, ben- the thing that would underline um, the future international order and guarantee peace. Unsurprisingly, the British were already very receptive to uh, this point of view that mandates should be governed in roughly a way that the British had governed them, and the British were stepping forward at the Paris Peace Conference, uh, led by David Lloyd George, to be the first to embrace these uh, new mandates uh, and to, to acquire them. If Europe was shaped by the Versailles Settlement, which involved the punishment of Germany and the reordering of the former Habsburg, Romanov and Ottoman empires, this can loosely be thought of as a Europe redefined by French concerns, mainly the concern for French security. The rest of the world seems to have been uh, settled, uh, particularly Africa and the Middle East, by uh, British concerns. Um, British imperial practices were imposed upon the mandates, but also Anglo-American power uh, underwrote the security of these new mandates and the influence of the United States was key in creating not only the League of Nations uh, but the mandate system. And so when America pulls out of the uh, the League of Nations and refuses to ratify the Treaty of Versailles, when Wilson returns to the States, it makes the new system highly vulnerable and unstable. And the mandates regime that was created at the Paris Peace Conference by 1920 is almost dead in the water. Instead of being backed up by American power or the power of a fading British Empire, the mandate system is simply backed up by the moral authority of the League of Nations itself. And obviously, as we, as we can see throughout the 1920s and 30s, the moral authority of the League of Nations is simply not enough. For the German and Ottoman empires, their colonies had been stripped from them bit by bit throughout the war. And so by 1918, uh, particularly in the case of Germany, the colonial possessions of the Wilhelmine Reich had already been seized, and there was only a faint glimmer of hope 
amongst the new Weimar Republic that these colonies would be returned. Germany's Pacific colonies were the first to go. Um, in 1914, for example, New Zealand soldiers uh, landed in Samoa, uh, which was uh, undefended, and uh, the New Zealand troops uh, seized the uh, islands without a battle. Nauru, um, the f- a phosphate-rich island from guano and bird droppings and that kind of thing, was uh, later... Uh, turned over to Australia when the HMAS Melbourne uh, turned up there on September the 9th, 1914. And New Guinea and the Bismarck Archipelago, the Bismarck Islands, were quickly seized by the Australian Navy as well. Um, the Australians actually travelled as far as the uh, Caroline, Mariana and Marshall Islands, only to realise that Britain's other ally, Japan, had annexed these and seized them. And in the space of eight weeks from the beginning of hostilities, the entirety of Germany's Pacific Island possessions had been captured by uh, its enemies. The war in Africa, which resulted in millions of African deaths, and yet is, is largely ignored in official histories of the First World War, uh, that focus on the on the trenches of the Western Front, saw so quick victories to the British and French uh, in the seizure of Togoland and the uh, Cameroonian port of Douala, uh, but the fight was a lot longer when the well-equipped German armies uh, in Central Africa and Southwest Africa uh, resisted and, and fought um, hard uh, against their enemies. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. And in the midst of this um, new war in Africa, curious racial politics of solidarity and, one might say, bigotry emerge, where white British, South African and German troops refused to fire on one another, um, arguing that 
there was something deeply dishonourable in shooting at a white man. Now, these were colonial troops who'd been used to fight colonial wars. The idea that um, there was some kind of solidarity amongst Europeans against the oppressed Africans who they governed was an article of, of faith, and it emerges in 1915. And the struggle uh, against German Southwest Africa and German East Africa was a long, protracted, drawn-out and bloody conflict that killed most Africans through famine. The, um, it presented the Belgians in Africa with an opportunity to seize Rwanda and Burundi from Germany and the historical consequences and legacy of the policy uh, that the Belgians introduced into Rwanda could be felt at the end of the 20th century in the Rwandan genocide. But that's a, a definitely a story for another time. While the war was still on, um, colonialism continued in Africa. Uh, South Africa, the British, the British Imperial Dominion of South Africa, began to extend its railway lines northwards and take new territories which were handed out to white settlers. Australia, in the territory of New Guinea, doubled the number of indentured labourers on uh, plantations that had been seized, indentured labour being little better than slavery by and large. And there was a great debate at the heart of British government policy towards newly captured territories. There were some members of the general staff who said, if you deprive Germany of all of her colonies, you will have a resentful Germany that will be difficult to deal with after the uh, conclusion of the peace. However, most of these objections were ignored and the growth of imperial holdings, particularly in German Africa, um, to provide rewards for British sacrifice during the war and to protect British dominions from other territories um, or to be given out as bribes to allies was an immense lure. Uh, there was a, it was seen as almost kind of unthinkable that leaving off the table these um, in these acquisitions could be entertained at all. France and Belgium occupied in part well France occupied in part and Belgium occupied nearly in its totality by uh, the Germans um, were also of the same view, and the French and Belgian population were fixated. Uh, mainly by events on the Western Front. But at the, at the time, in 1916 and 1970, French officials and Belgian officials were engaged in conversations with the British about what would happen with German colonies. The British, if anything, were more fixated on the Middle East. They had far more troops there than the French, and that meant that they were far more likely to be able to determine uh, the outcome of the Ottoman Empire. The, uh, in 1915, at the Treaty of London, which was a secret treaty that brought Italy into the war, uh, the offer of parts of the Ottoman Empire, if the war was won, was enough to tilt the balance and uh, to draw uh, Italy into the struggle. Italy was also offered parts of Africa, 
as compensation as well. However, the offer of rewards to Italy depended on how easily Africa and the German holdings in Africa and the Ottoman Empire were conquered anyway. If, as turned out, it was a long bloody fight in both theatres and the Italians appeared to have contributed very little, then when one gets to the Paris Peace Conference, simply packaging them up nice gifts that had been for, um, earned with an immense amount of British imperial and French imperial blood, was politically unpalatable. In Mesopotamia, for example, uh, the British Indian Army had fought there for four years and with a loss of nearly 100,000 men. The difficulties that Britain encounters in Mesopotamia and Palestine uh, lead to the necessity of falling back on Arab support. And in 1915, uh, connections are made with Sharif Hussein of Mecca, who was the ruler of Hejaz, the Hejaz region, uh, along the western seaboard of the, uh, of the Arabian Peninsula. And promises made to uh, Sharif Hussein by Sir Henry McMahon, the High Commissioner of Egypt, uh, highly misleading promises. And then the uh, efforts of uh, Sharif Hussein's Arab fighters, led in part by Lawrence of Arabia, meant that the carve-up of the Ottoman Empire uh, and once again the rewarding of Italy along with France and Britain becomes far more politically volatile and complex. When France looked at alliances between Britain and the Arabs, they smelt trouble. The French had uh, powerful and long-standing interests in the Levant, the region of which is now uh, Lebanon and Syria. The French in the mid-19th century had been able to guarantee the rights within the Ottoman Empire of the Christian community in Lebanon for um, the foreseeable future. And French uh, businesses had a huge amount of penetration of Syrian and Lebanese markets, particularly in the silk trade. France had become the lingua franca of the educated classes of Lebanon and Syria, and there were 40,000 children enrolled in French schools uh, in Lebanon. And the, the hope that the French had was that with the breakup of the Ottoman Empire, their control could be extended to all of Syria, and they wanted to hopefully uh, annex Palestine as well um, into either a mandate or a protectorate or something of that of that nature. But the French had not really fought for the Middle East. It had, the Middle East had been fought with mainly British and colonial troops, Australians, Indians, and there were few French uh, among them. And so instead, the French had to rely on diplomatic pressure at the Paris Peace Conference, the uh, people such as Clemenceau made the point to Lloyd George that, well, of course, you had free reign in the Middle East because we were taking most of the punishment at places like Verdun, which is perhaps uh, to uh, ignore Britain's sacrifices on the Western Front, but it was the only card he had to play. In May 1916, an agreement between 
Sir Mark Sykes of Great Britain and Francois-Georges Picot of France carved up uh, the Ottoman Empire. The Sykes-Picot Agreement, which was only bore Sykes' name because he was the only man in the British government that appeared to have knowledge of the Middle East and other uh, Orientalists and Arabists, such as Gertrude Bell, questioned whether that was uh, particularly good knowledge at all. And because this uh, agreement had been created, it meant that France was able to establish such direct or indirect administration or control as they desire in Lebanon and the swathe of territory running from um, all the way up to Armenia. Mesopotamia, or modern-day Iraq, would fall under British control and coastal Palestine would be placed under international control with some sort of independent Arab state existing in the middle, which would be now the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. This was far less than Sharif Hussein had been promised. He believed that an Arab state extending from Egypt to Persia and from the borders of Turkey all the way down to the tip of Arabia would be the product of the uh, outcome of the war. And at a time when most British officials thought the chance of an Arab state was laughable anyway, this would have been in 1916, plans were afoot to create a Jewish homeland in Palestine. Note that the wording of the later Balfour Declaration in late 1917 doesn't say state, it says homeland, showed what commitments the British really had to Arab aspirations. What we can see emerging here is uh, in, under the mandate system uh, that develops at the conference, and we'll look at the actual horse trading that creates the mandates um, in some future podcasts. But w- what's emerging here is a kind of a strange chimera creature, uh, colonies that aren't called colonies anymore, that function rather like colonies, that exist under international control, but the reality is they are still um, essentially run by Britain and France and Britain's imperial dominions. And what this means is that a kind of new colonialism was emerging at the end of the First World War, one with a slightly more um, acceptable veneer, one which kind of pandered to um, American views on independence and autonomy, uh, even though those views themselves uh, were decidedly illiberal in certain cases. There were all manner of American diplomats that thought that inferior peoples should exist under stewardship and management for the foreseeable future. So this strange um, chimera of uh, imperial ideas Um, liberal notions of nation-states and nation-building, we would see that continued and developed throughout the 20th century as decolonialism occurred after the the Second World War and the various politics that surround the creation of ideas like the Third World uh, in the the post-war era, which are things that I, I will, of course, return to. Anyway, I hope you found this useful and not too much of a ramble, and I'll catch you on the next Explaining History podcast. Do remember to give us a good review on the uh, Explaining History iTunes page, 
And if you can, check out our Patreon page, and I'll post the link at some point below. All the best. Thanks. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.